Today's scripture is in the book of John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may seek the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of God. Thanks, Timothy, for reading God's word to us. And hi, New Hope. Great to see you all once again. Um, Timothy just read to us from John chapter 7, the first 13 verses. That's what we asked him to read. But we're actually going to be covering a little bit more of this chapter. We're going to be going down to verse 36. And actually, if anyone would like, I've got a bunch of these outlines here. and Make these to hand out to the youth group, but really they're available to anyone who wants one. So if you didn't get one of these outlines and you want one, just raise your hand. And there's a young, handsome young man up here that would love, sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass. There's a young man here who would love to get you one of these outlines. Just raise your hand. He'll run one over to you, all right? All right. Thanks. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that in love and mercy, you would show us Jesus Christ in the pages of your word today. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to see him and to love him. We ask that in his name. Amen. There's a uh, fascinating contrast that runs throughout the Gospel of John There are many, many people in this gospel who meet Jesus and they react to him in so many different ways. Some people love him, some people hate him. Some people, when they meet Jesus, they're conflicted about how to respond to him. Some people are deeply skeptical and suspicious of him, and others are really curious and they want to know more about who Jesus Christ is. There are people, and we we saw this last week, who, who like Christ at first, they follow him for a while, and then they abandon him. But some people, some are convinced that they need to know him, and, and they see no other option but to follow Jesus Christ. There are so many responses to Christ. Now, now here's the contrast, though. In the face of all these different reactions, Jesus Christ remains stable and secure in his identity and in his purpose. He is not shaken or confused or 
unsettled by the various responses he gets. Jesus Christ is the most secure man who ever lived. I wonder, do you like to be liked? Do you, in fact, long to be liked by people? Do you desire to be accepted and approved of? How often has the opinion of someone about you left you unsettled? Like you hear a comment or you hear about what someone thinks of you or you wonder if someone might not like you or might not approve of you. Does that ever unsettle you and leave you worried or sad? Maybe it's a word of criticism from from someone or, or maybe it's a sarcastic comment that you hear from a classmate at school. Maybe they said it behind your back, but you picked up on it. Or maybe it was a joke. They're mocking you right to your face. Maybe you get laid off from your job and you start to wonder, what what does this company really think of me? Sometimes it's enough to leave you questioning your own worth, your own identity. On the other hand, sometimes a positive remark from someone, some some word of praise, those can sometimes have the the power to to fill us with so much self-assurance and even pride. We can start to get arrogant because we hear these positive remarks from people or we get the sense that people do really approve of us, at least important people that we want to impress do. So either way, you see, whether it's a positive remark on the one hand or it's a negative response, the way people view us can affect us powerfully. And, And we're all a little different in this. Some of us, we react more strongly to the positive input. We, we allow that to, to inflate our egos. And others of us, maybe we're, we respond more naturally to the negative input. And we allow those negative comments or responses to deflate us completely. We, we spiral into self-doubt. But this is true. The desire to be liked and accepted When it gets out of control and and it rules us, that desire can hurt us badly and it can leave us wondering who we really are. When I was um, a college professor, I I would get this student feedback form, these student feedback forms at the end of each semester. You filled these out, right? You know what it's like. I, I actually looked forward to getting these feedback forms these evaluations, because generally they were, they were positive and, and they helped me to feel like what I was doing mattered. Frankly, um, they also fed into this sense of identity, this false sense of identity that I had. I would receive these feedback forms and if they were good and positive, then, then I would think to myself, I'm good at this and, and this is who I am. This is my identity. I'm someone who's good at doing this job. Can you relate to that, to finding your identity in the work that you do? Basing your sense of self, who you are, and your sense of worth on the job that you do. But the very last semester that I was teaching, I got one comment from a student that was awful. And, and guess which of all the feedback forms I got that semester, which one I remember the best? It's that awful one. I was fuming with anger because of what this student said because I thought, this student didn't work hard. I remembered all the ways he didn't work hard. I remember all the extra chances he asked me for. I remembered all the late assignments he handed in. 
and all the patience I had with him and all the extra chances I gave him and how I went out of my way to help him learn. And then I got that negative feedback. I was fuming. And I realized I wasn't just angry because of his ingratitude. I was angry because the student had undermined my sense of who I was and my sense of self-worth. I started to doubt myself as a teacher because of that one evaluation. It's amazing the power that others' opinions can have over us. Even strangers. But especially when it comes from people who who are important to us. What we see in the Gospels is a man who got the full spectrum of reactions from people. We're going to see that even in this scene that we look at in John 7. And overall, the most frequent response that Jesus received was rejection, suspicion. He was hated by powerful people. He was even hated eventually by people whom he had trusted and loved and gone out of his way to serve. And yet, Jesus Christ was never derailed by any of this. The most secure man who ever lived knows who he is. And that clear sense of identity and worth, it anchors Christ no matter how others view him. Is that attractive to you? That stable sense of self that's that's unaffected, or at least it's not undone and completely unsettled by the opinions of others, isn't that an attractive characteristic? Do you find that to be a desirable characteristic? I I hope so. I I hope it's attractive to you. I hope it's so attractive to you that you will want to know Jesus Christ more. And, And I hope it's so desirable to you that you will want to live with that same sense of assurance and security. Because only he can give that to you. Two things we need to see in this section. Gospel of John. One, how do people respond to Jesus? And two, how does Jesus respond to people? Two simple questions. One, how do people respond to Jesus in this scene? Please open a a Bible or or a device to John chapter 7. I'd like you to follow along if you can. The action here, it takes place in probably September or October. And we know that because John tells us that the Feast of Booths was at hand. It was about to start. This feast was sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a seven-day holiday, and it's an important event in the Jewish culture. It comes around harvest time, and and many people at this time, what they would do is travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And celebrating involved building these booths. They would build these structures out of leaves and branches, and, and they would have to stay inside those booths for a time. And the reason they did this, it comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, verse 43. You don't have to look at that. But there God reminds his people of the ways in which while they were wandering in the wilderness, after God's people were, were, were redeemed from bondage in Egypt, God took them into the season when they were wandering through the, the wilderness, through the desert, and during that time, God provided for them, and during that time, he had them live in these tents or booths. And so this feast was a chance for them to look back at what had happened in the past and remember that even in their wanderings, even in their suffering, God was always with them. And so every time they would come to harvest time, because this happened around harvest time, 
every year, September, October, they would celebrate the harvest. Look at all the abundance that God had given them, all the crops that were coming in, and at the same time, remember, what's better than all these crops? What's better than all these blessings? God is with us. He is present. He is faithful. This holiday is still experienced today. As a matter of fact, some of you may have seen this. Maybe you have um, people in your family or friends who build these booths. Um, I was walking, actually, I was walking down, where was it? I guess I was walking down like 6th Ave or something. Actually, I was going to, your, I was going to the, the Redeemer Counseling Office, and I'm walking down 6th Ave, and I see this mobile booth. It was like on a trailer. It was big, and it, it had a big sign on the side, and it was for Jewish people. As you're walking on the street, and you're like, oh, I haven't celebrated the Feast of Booths yet, I can walk into this mobile booth, this mobile kind of tabernacle, and celebrate and do my thing and remember God's faithfulness. So some people are still building their booths. I know of someone who told me their neighbor built one right in their backyard. And um, if you don't have time to build one, you can find one in the middle of Manhattan. This happens, John chapter 7, about six months after Jesus Christ miraculously fed 15,000 people with just a few scraps of bread and some fish. That would have happened back in June. And, And if you remember when that happened... The people who saw Jesus feed those, the multitude, they, they saw that miracle and they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him their king. How's that for a positive response? How's that for positive feedback? Right? The crowd's saying, we want you to be our ruler right now. And Jesus doesn't allow that to unsettle his mission. He doesn't get drawn off course. He continues to do the work that he was sent to do. So here, John chapter 7, masses of people from all over the surrounding region are heading to the Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And remember, we're asking, how do people respond to Jesus in this scene? Here's our first clue right at the end of verse 1. It says the Jews were seeking to kill him. And by the Jews here, it's on all Jewish people. This is a reference to the Jewish religious leaders of the time. Those leaders wanted to kill Jesus, and if you want to know why they wanted to kill Jesus, we have to go back to chapter 5, verse 18, and we'll see it there. It says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, and he was making himself equal with God. So the Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus on the one hand because he had broken the law, at least in their eyes, because he had worked, he had healed someone on the Sabbath. But they also wanted to kill him because he had called himself the Son of God, and they considered that blasphemy. They didn't realize that he was actually being honest and truthful. So back to John chapter 7. Already we know that the Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus. How how else do people respond to Jesus in this scene? There's murderous thoughts on on, on the part of some, In John chapter 7, it also tells us that Christ's own family was heading to Jerusalem to celebrate. And his brothers encouraged Jesus to go too. They say, you need to go to Jerusalem too. But they don't just want him to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Look at what it says in verse 3. It says, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. You see, Jesus' brothers know that this is going to be a huge feast. It's the biggest event of the year in one sense. If if Jesus makes a big entrance in Jerusalem with with an entourage, and, and he starts performing miraculous signs, 
he could amass a huge following in just that seven-day period. This was a unique PR opportunity. And his brothers know that. They know that if Jesus is really interested in building his platform, he needs to establish a reputation in Jerusalem, in the big city. Not on the countryside. He's a massive following in the countryside. He needs to get there into center city in Jerusalem and get some followers there. And if he creates enough buzz, if he creates enough following, who knows what the future can hold for him? Jerusalem is where it's at. As someone who said, if you want to be a movie star, you move to L.A. Or maybe New York. You want a career in fashion? You move to Manhattan. That's where you need to network and build in order to get ahead in your field. Now remember, this, this, this may have been a very discouraging time for Jesus. Because we saw last week in John 6, 66, that many of his disciples were walking away from him. He was losing, he was hemorrhaging followers. And that's probably why his brothers here say to him, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, because if you go there, your disciples may believe in you. It's like they're saying, perhaps you can win some disciples back. And Christ refuses to go. He's not interested. His brothers say, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. The time is now. And Jesus says, literally, my time has not yet come. In one sense, the time hasn't come for him to go to that feast. In another sense, the time hasn't come for him to to make his big entrance into Jerusalem. He would make a big entrance into Jerusalem, just not now. He would eventually enter Jerusalem and be publicly acknowledged for who he really is, but that public entrance would come later, on the very weekend that he would be executed. So on the one hand, Jesus' brothers are gassing him up. You know, they're, they're, built, they're, saying, they're saying, come on, step up. You are the man. Go show them that you're the man. But, but at the same time, they're skeptical of him themselves. It says not even his brothers really believed in him. So it may be that they're kind of testing him. If you really are the man, prove it. Go to the big city and show the masses what you can do. In fact, his brothers may even be in some way mocking him here in the way that brothers can sometimes do. You see, even in his own home, Christ had to deal with the unhelpful opinions of others. His own household was, was, was not behind him 100%. They were undermining his sense of self-worth and identity. But look at the way Jesus responds. His, un, his brother's input ultimately does not undermine him. He won't allow it to. He says, I don't, I don't need to pull any stunts, any PR stunts. I, I don't need to create a buzz for myself. I, I don't need to prove anything. He is the most secure man who ever lived. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it says, there is a time for everything, and Jesus believes that. He is operating according to a divine timeline. He is in step with the Father's will for him. And so what he does is he patiently abides by his Father's timetable. You know what's ironic here? His brothers didn't realize 
that one day Jesus would go to Jerusalem and he would perform his greatest act ever. It wouldn't be a PR stunt. It would be the greatest and last of his great acts. His act of sacrifice. It would be the greatest sacrifice that the world would ever see. He would die and he would rise from the dead. The time hadn't come for that yet. And so Jesus waits. But then strangely, it takes a weird turn here, the story does, because Jesus decides, after his brothers have left and headed to Jerusalem, Jesus decides to go as well. I don't think Jesus is changing his plans here. He had said the time has not come. That doesn't mean that after they left, the time would not come. They left, and he's like, no, now it's time. Now, we don't know exactly why he did that. Some of us, you know, the introverts amongst us, we'd rather travel on our own than with a big group of people. I don't think Jesus was just letting his, you know, introversion kind of like take over here, if he was, in fact, at all introverted. He had a plan. He's abiding by a very careful timeline that seems to have have received from his father. So Jesus does follow along, but he doesn't go to Jerusalem with an entourage. He doesn't go with his family or all his disciples. You see, he intentionally goes, not publicly, it says in verse 10, but in private. Look at verse 10. It says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and, and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Jesus didn't want to attract a crowd, at least not yet. When he arrives, he doesn't even begin immediately healing people or feeding people. Instead, he goes into the temple. First, it seems he just kind of hangs low. And then he goes to the temple about the middle of the feast. So this is later. This is after several days. And he begins teaching, it says in verse 14. And by the way, this is very interesting. This is exactly where he would expect to find the people who wanted to kill him. Where would those religious leaders be that had it out for him in the temple? If he was going to Jerusalem just to to get a following and just impress some people and get people to like him and get people to actually accept him, then maybe the temple wouldn't be the right place to go. In any case, he goes there knowing that he's going to face conflict. And he does. How do the people respond to Jesus? It says they spoke about him privately in verse 13. They were kind of speaking secretly, muttering about him. In verse 15, it says that they were impressed by him, by the things that he was teaching. Not only were they impressed by the fact that that, that, that he would get up and speak and the way that he was teaching... The words that were coming out of his mouth were impressive. They said, who is this man that can teach you? How does he know the scripture so well? He's not not an educated, erudite guy. How, How does he know all this? But they're also, I think, impressed by the fact that he would step into the temple knowing that leaders were after his head. You see, even his courage was impressive. But it's not just courage, you see. He knows who he is. And he knows who sent him. And he knows why he was sent. And so he can step into this situation that's fraught with tension and stand secure and safe and rest in who he is and why he's there. We see essentially four responses from people in this section. 
I'll give you the four. Some people in this section will say he's a good man. Some people are going to say he seems like a liar. Some are still going to say he's a lunatic. Some are going to say he's Lord. So we've got a good man, that's one option. Option B, he's a liar. Option C, he's a lunatic. Or option D, he's the Lord. Well, let's look at these one by one. In verse 12, it says, And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. And others said, No, he is leading the people astray. You see, there's some people say, He's a good man. He's a good teacher, certainly. And I think he can be trusted. Others say, No, he's, he's a false teacher. He's leading people in the wrong direction. He's a liar. It's option A and B. And look at verse 20. It says, The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Because Jesus had said, you, he's talking to Jewish leaders in the temple, he says, you're trying to kill me. Why are you trying to kill me? Some people look at him and say, are you crazy? This man's out of his mind. He's not in his right mind. He's got a demon or something because he thinks people are after him. Crazy? And then there's option D. We see that in verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? They see the signs that Jesus performed, and they say in verse 31, this has to be the Christ. This has to be the Lord. Four different responses that Jesus receives here. And the first option, he's a good man, in quotes. That may very well be the most common response to Jesus in our time and in our culture. People are quick to look at Jesus and say he's a fine example, a fine moral teacher. But really, of these four options that I've given you, it's really the most unreasonable option. It's really the one that makes the least sense. Because Jesus made claims that were absolutely radical. And, and the, the religious teachers saw that. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to come down from heaven. Remember, this is why they want to kill him. When he's on trial in the book of Mark, it tells us that he said he's going to return and appear to judge all of humankind. He claims throughout the Gospels to have the power to forgive sin. Which means that he's God because only God can forgive sins. He says later in this very gospel of John, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. I'm the exclusive way that you can know God and be loved by him. The previous chapter, John 6, he says, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. He promises that he has the power to give eternal life. If any of those claims are not true, then Jesus cannot be perceived as a good man or a good teacher. These claims are too outrageous. They're too radical. And and the people who saw Jesus at first hand, they knew that. They knew that in the end we can't just settle by saying, yeah, he's a good guy, but even they lapsed into that kind of faulty thinking. Look at what it says here. I'm going to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis, some of you may have heard this before, it's a famous quote. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. 
you must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse than a madman. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. You see, of the four options I gave you, the four responses, he's a good man, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he is Lord, the first option really needs to get tossed out. It's not an option at all. John Duncan, who was a theologian in the 19th century, he, he framed it famously this way. He, he gave us what he called a trilemma. He said, Jesus must be either lunatic, liar, or Lord. He's one of the three. He could be a, a liar, as it says in verse 12. He's leading the people astray. He could be out of his mind, like it says in verse 20. He has a demon. And those two things are very similar, by the way. Right? Sometimes you might hear about someone or meet someone, and you're like, I don't know if this person is just really evil and a liar or if they're just nuts. Can't tell. I think about this way when I see like cult leaders, for instance. I wonder, like, do these cult leaders really believe, like the ones who you know, build these communes, they have all these people living together, and then they do terrible things, and you've heard horror stories about mass suicides and things like that. And I look at these cult leaders, and I think, like, do they really, are they, are they crazy enough to really believe what they're teaching? Or are they just wicked liars? Or is it maybe a combination of both? Is he self-deluded, or is he just deeply deceptive and, and evil? When it comes to Jesus, is he a liar, is he a lunatic, or... Is he Lord, as those in verse 31 come to the conclusion? How do we know that he is Lord? Well, it says in the, the, those folks in verse 31, it says they, they saw the signs that he was performing, but it goes beyond that. They also listened to his words. Look at what it says in verse 17. Jesus is calling us in verse 17 to, to consider his words. He says, judge me by what I'm teaching you. Jesus' teachings have shaped history. Jesus' teachings have spoken to the deepest needs of the human life. The people closest to Christ, like his family members, at this point they didn't believe in him yet, but eventually they would. His mother, his brothers, the ones who saw him up close, the ones who were least likely to want to admit, who wants to admit that their little brother wants to call their little brother master and king? The ones who were closest to him eventually came to the realization, he is Lord. And then in verse 23 and 24, Jesus says, judge me by my actions. What does he do? He, he heals people. He makes them whole. His miracles were not just stunts. He wasn't pulling flowers out of a hat or bunnies out of his pocket. He's making sick broken people whole. He's taking hungry, impoverished people and he's filling them. His signs, every one, was meant to reveal who he is. Who do you say he is? Some say he's a good man. Some say he was a liar. Some say he was crazy. Some say he is Lord. Who do you say he is? I don't assume that because you're on, in church on a Sunday afternoon that you believe Jesus is Lord. 
I will not make that assumption. I don't think you should make that assumption either. Who do you say he is? This passage also shows us not only how people respond to Jesus, but in second place, how do people, how does Jesus respond to people? How does Jesus respond to people? Let's look quickly at what he does. First thing, Jesus responds to people by, (laughs) he expects the rejection. It doesn't surprise him. He expects the rejection. In fact, the rejection that he's experiencing here in Jerusalem, it it was foreshadowed way in the very beginning of John chapter 1, where it says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. In other words, his own people stiff-armed him. And right here in John chapter 7, verse 7, he says to, to, to his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but, listen, this is the part I want to see, the world hates me. He says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Jesus testifies to the fact that the world's deeds are evil. Not only by the things he teaches does he call the world evil, but even his presence testifies to the fact that the world is a broken, sinful place. The fact that there's a Savior on the scene means that we all need to be saved and we are a mess. His very presence tells us that. When you see, the other night, I look outside, I see an ambulance on the street next to ours. The very presence of that ambulance, I don't know what's going on in that house, but something was going wrong. The presence of those lights, the presence of the paramedics tells me someone's in trouble in that place and needs to be saved. The very presence of Jesus here amongst us tells us we are in trouble and we need to be saved. And that's deeply offensive to some of us. He also called out sin very clearly. Sins of hypocrisy, sexual immorality, greed, deception. He calls them out. He says, I expect to be hated. But Jesus also, beyond just expecting the rejection, Jesus points to the one who sent him. This is the second aspect of how he responds to people. He keeps pointing away from himself. He keeps pointing to the one who sent him. He keeps talking about God the Father. You know that in this time, religious teachers, normally what they would do when they were teaching is they would constantly appeal to a long list of respected rabbis. And they would say, my teaching is, is the, the way I can prove that my teaching is true is because it's in line with rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so They trained me. My teaching is in line with the tradition. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He doesn't point to tradition. He points to the God of the universe. He says, every word that I speak to you is a word from him. And so what he's saying, in a sense, is your problem ultimately is not just a problem with me. Your problem was with the one who sent me. He he says, do you know God? If you do know God, then you will recognize my teaching is authentic. You'll know that it doesn't originate with me, but with him. And you see what he's doing here. He's, he's calling into question their relationship with the God they claim to know and serve. It's as if he's saying, your, your response to me, I know it's not ultimately just about me. Your response to me actually says more about where your heart is at. And it says more about how you view your God. He was able to do that because he knew who he was. Stable and secure. 
finding his identity in what is true about him, he's able to say, your response to me, your rejection of me, says more about your heart towards your God. He also continues to love and serve. He doesn't meet the rejection with a write-off and say, I washed my hands of you, I'm out of here. He continues to love and serve. As the accusations keep coming, as people say, do you have a demon? Are you out of your mind? As people say, you broke the Sabbath. Do you know how awful that is? As people say, aren't you the son of that carpenter from Nazareth? You're a nobody. You're not that impressive. We know who you are. What does he do? He continues. He stays. He continues to engage. He continues to serve. And and how do we know he continues to serve? Because the climactic act of opposition that he faced was at the cross. That's where all the opposition boiled up to a head. And he was finally arrested, he was beaten, and he was murdered. And in in the process of of that happening, what was he doing? He was serving. He's offering himself up. He's taking it all upon himself. He's taking even the sin itself on his shoulders, and he's dying as an act of sacrifice on the cross. For the sins of the people who are sinning by killing him. He continues to love and serve. And lastly, he does all this with urgency. He does it all with urgency. Look at what it says in verse 33. It says, Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. You hear what Jesus is saying here? He's facing people that are responding to him in many different ways. He's not unsettled by it. It doesn't crush him when others question him or mock him. But with urgency and earnestness, he says, you don't have much time. to realize who I really am. You don't have much time to embrace me as Lord. Because I'm leaving soon and where I'm going, you cannot come unless you take me for who I am and trust me and believe me and love me. You see, the the secureness, that strong sense of identity and self-worth in Christ, didn't lead him to be aloof from others and say, I don't care what you think. It led him to plead with them and say, the time is short, the time is now, please embrace me. Look at the love I have for you. Look at what I am willing to do for you. Look at who I am and follow me. Motivated by love, the love drives him to an urgent plea to stop rejecting Start embracing and following him. I want to just give you two takeaways as we close down, two bits of application. The first one is this if you get your identity from God, you will be able to live in security, in a deep sense of secure identity and self worth. If you get your identity from God, 
that secure sense of self that comes will free you to do what you were made to do. Let, let me rephrase it this way. Getting your identity from God will free you to do what you were made for. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 20, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. That means that as Christ's followers, we're being sent by Jesus into the world on his mission. And as we do that, I believe he wants us to know that we should expect responses similar to the responses he received. In some cases, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you may be patted on the head and called a nice person. <laughs> You're a good guy. I like you. You're just nice. As a follower of Jesus, you may be also considered an absolute lunatic. You're crazy to believe that. You're crazy to follow a, a, a dead Jewish man who claims to be the Son of God. In many cases, your sincerity and your honesty may be called into question. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. You don't really believe that. He's not really your Lord. Look at you. Look at your life. Or some will respond to you by worshiping the Lord together with you. They will see in you who Jesus is and they will come to love him just as you have come to love him. We should expect some of the same responses that Jesus got, not to the same degree, but in some ways. And so I believe that Jesus wants us to respond to those reactions in ways similar to the way he responded. So for instance, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are finding your identity in Jesus, expect skepticism and opposition, just like he did. Point others to the one who sent you, just like he did. What did he do? He, he said, your, your, your hatred for me isn't really about me. I don't, I don't care what you think about me so much. I was sent by someone. And so for us, we can do this similar thing. It, it, point others to the one who sent us. Point others to Christ. Instead of worrying that people will like us, what, what if we worried more that they would like the one who sent us? What if we cared more about people's opinions of Christ than we did about their opinions of us? And continue to love and serve the way Christ did. Even when it costs us our, our, our standing or our reputation, even when it hurts. And the fact is that we cannot do it. We cannot continue to serve and love people who reject us and don't approve of us unless we are finding our identity in Jesus Christ. Over the long run, you will not continue to love and serve the people who reject you unless you're finding your identity in Jesus Christ. You will want to give up serving them. You will get tired of it. You will get worn out and you will wipe your hands of them. Unless, unless, if you're finding your identity in Jesus Christ, then the rejection that you're feeling from them, the animosity, the mocking, it's going to hurt, there's no doubt. And yet, to the degree that we are finding our identity in Christ, our self-worth in Him, we're able to press on and keep loving and keep serving because we know that ultimately that what their opinion of us is not the most important thing. And we'll be driven to do all this with a sense of urgency. 
Because life is short. There's not much time. The Bible reminds us again and again and again that we are like, we're like a vapor, a mist that appears for a moment and blows away. Our lives are like that. Our, our lives are, are, are like a flower that, that blossoms and soon withers and dies away and is forgotten. The, 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 the Bible reminds us again and again of that. Why? Because it wants us to see that how we respond to Christ is of the utmost importance. Some of us are worried about people liking us so much. We don't care if they like Jesus or not. That's some of us are on that end. Some of us may be on the other end. We're, we're, we're so eager to confront people and we pick fights with people. We don't care if they like Jesus. Either. We don't care if we're representing Jesus well. We just like to be right. We like to win the argument. Either way, whichever extreme you happen to be on, you're making your relationships to others about you. And frankly, it's not meant to be about us. It's about the one who sent us. And we can't lose sight of who we are and why we are sent. We won't be able to live as we're meant to live unless we're getting our sense of self and sense of identity from God. And that begins by believing that Jesus is Lord. And that he died for you in your place for your sins. By trusting in his death and his resurrection, you're given a new identity. You're now a forgiven, redeemed child of God. You're loved, you're affirmed, you're accepted by him. You are now seen in Christ, you're seen as a righteous child of the God. And as such, you've been sent by Jesus to do the will of your Father. Now, now that, that is a true and stable, unchangeable identity. Let's stand in that identity. Let's remind each other of that identity. Because the fact is that without a firm identity in Jesus, the approval of others and rejection by others, they will both have the power to wreck you daily. And you will do things that you never thought you would do in order to be liked or in order to, to just shut up those critical voices, whether they're coming from outside or they're critical voices in your head. But as you stand in the identity that Jesus gives you, more and more, that criticism, the, the, the skepticism that, that, that begins to lose its power slowly. And you'll, you'll slowly stop craving all the positive feedback. You, you, that, that need to prove yourself, to impress others, will, will start to weaken slowly as you grow to know who you are in Christ and who it is that sent you into this world. Lastly and simply, just one other application. Jesus is confronting us here, each one of us. He's confronting you today. Every single time that we come into contact with God's word, Christ is engaging you, and he's saying, who do you say that I am? How are you responding to him? 
how are you responding to him? If he is Lord, truly Lord, then give yourself to him. Give everything to him. Find out what he demands of you and and then plead with him for the grace to respond in obedience. And the way to find out what he demands of you is to read what he says to you in his word. Some of us, we're, we're playing with him maybe. We're kind of limping between these different ideas. Is he really the Lord? Yeah, is he just a good guy? Is he a lunatic? Is he, is he a liar? We're not sure. Some of us, I, I fear this is the greatest danger for some of us who have grown up in a church environment, is to already have settled in your mind, yeah, pretty sure he's Lord. But it matters very little to you. So worshiping him, obeying him, finding your identity in him, Having your life shaped by him? No, it's not important. For some reason, it's somehow important. Now, there's a dissonance there. How can we at one time say he's Lord, and yet at the same time says that really doesn't affect my life or have anything to do with the way I live? I would argue that you're really not seeing him as Lord. If he is Lord, then live for him. If he is Lord, then let him tell you who you are and how you must live. Some of us, I, I think it's possible for, especially if you grow up in a Christian home, it's possible to live what I heard someone call a, a faith-adjacent life. Faith-adjacent. I just heard it. It's, it's like you're, you're not really, your faith isn't in Jesus. You're just very close to people who have their faith in Jesus. So you're kind of like adjacent to it, right? And so you can walk and be around Jesus a lot and around people who believe him a lot and come to places like this where his name is sung about and talked about and read his word. You can do all these things and yet there's really no faith connection between you and him. There's a connection. Your parents have a connection to him, but, but maybe you don't. A faith-adjacent life is ultimately without power. A faith-adjacent life does not have the power to help you to live in such a way that you will be able to do what you are meant to do. A faith-adjacent life will not give you power to stand in the face of the rejection that you're going to receive or the approval that you're going to receive. A faith-adjacent life leaves you weak and vulnerable to the world around you and to sin. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Through his word and by his spirit, Jesus has come here, and he has shown us who he is. And he has urgently and earnestly called you to believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Jesus, we thank you for the ways in which you, were, you walked amongst us. And even by your spirit, you are present here with us now. Would you create in us the faith we need to lean on you wholeheartedly and to see you for who you really are? Amen.